Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 25th of September. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. I'm Dr Chris Smith and in the studio with me is a plate full of very nice looking cheese. And joining me from his kitchen is Ben Valsler. Hello Ben. Hello Chris, thank you ever so much. We are in the middle of British food fortnight and tomorrow marks the start of British Cheese Week. So we're going to be looking at the science of food. To help me out I'm joined by food physicist Amy Chesterton. Hello, yes, I'll be baking a cake during the show to explain the chemistry of cookery to you. Well, that sounds extremely tasty. Make sure you do save me some. We're also going to be exploring the microbiology of food, how microorganisms help us to make delicious cheeses, and also best before dates, how bacteria can turn good-for-you food into bad-for-you food. Ben? And in the news this week, how scientists can reconstruct on a computer the pictures that you see in your mind's eye. So, if you'd like to get in touch, and we do love to hear from you, you can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can also write on our Facebook page, that's at thenakedscientists.com slash Facebook, or you can drop us an email. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Ben Valsler and we're kicking off with a look at some of this week's breaking science news stories. Ben, what have you got? DEET is one of the most common chemicals in insect repellents, but since its invention, scientists have been unable to settle a decision about exactly how it works. Now, work published in Nature suggests that DEET not only confuses scientists, but it also confuses insects too by scrambling the code that they use to identify odours. DEET, or N-N-diethylmetatoluamide, was developed by the US Army after the Second World War. It's extremely effective at preventing mosquitoes and other biting insects from actually getting to you and biting you, but research has never shown conclusively how it works. We think it's either by blocking the olfactory system from recognising smells at all, or it's by triggering an avoidance behaviour response, so it smells really bad. Insects like mosquitoes and the intensely studied fruit fly Drosophila melanogaster detect odours in the air through their antennae. Each of the many receptors present in their antennae triggers activity in local nerves. The activity can either be the excitement or the inhibition of a nerve response, and it's the particular pattern of activity that actually tells the insect what this smell is. Leslie Vossel and colleagues at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute looked at the activity in certain fruit fly nerves and they observed what happens in response to DEET on its own and also to DEET in a combination with a range of other odour molecules. And they found that the effect with DEET was not straightforward at all. It actually depends on the odour, it depends on the receptor and even on the concentration of DEET. In some combinations, DEET would suppress a normally inhibitory response, so that increases neural activity, but in other 
combinations, it would reduce an excitatory response, which reduces neural activity. DEET alone, though, actually did very, very little, and the response that DEET on its own got was far less than any of the combinations combined. So what's going on? Well, what they've concluded is that DEET acts as what they've called a molecular confusant. So it scrambles the normal odour code by changing the way that the olfactory receptors react to a given chemical. The insects are still perfectly capable of detecting that the odours are there. They still react physically to the molecules in the same way. But they can't work out what they are anymore because that nervous signal has been scrambled. Understanding a bit more about how DEET works could lead to the development of brand new repellents, and that could ultimately help to reduce transmission of insect-borne diseases such as malaria and dengue fever. Isn't that amazing that we just didn't understand how this, effectively the most successful insect repellent ever made, has been working all this time? I think it was probably developed essentially by trial and error, and it's just taken us this long to really get to grips with what's happening. But once you know how it works, you're forearmed is forewarned in terms of making a better one in future. Thank you, Ben. Now, talking of insects and things, let's get down to the level of beetles. Now, there's a paper been published this week which I think probably borders on the science fiction in terms of the sort of message it conveys. It's absolutely real, though. This is Gil Weissen and Avital Gassith, who are two researchers at Tel Aviv University. They've written this up in the journal PLOS One. And what they are describing is a classic example of the hunted becoming the hunter and vice versa. Let me tell you how this works. So a few years ago, they were out in the field and they spotted some amphibians that had these larvae clinging to them. And wondering what was going on and how these larvae came to be attacking the thing that should actually be eating them, they then started to do some experiments in the lab. So they set up a series of tanks, and with more than 400 experiments, they introduced an amphibian, such as a toad, to one of these larvae. Now, the larvae we're talking about are the larvae of a beetle called Ipomis. These are ground beetles, and they looked at two species in particular. They looked at Circumscriptus and also DJNI. What they find is that these insects, bizarrely, wave their antennae around to attract the attention of the amphibian because it thinks, aha, there is lunch. The amphibian hops over towards them, goes to eat them, and they dodge out of the way, and then in the same swift, deft movement, they grab hold of the amphibian and latch on with these razor-sharp mouth parts that they've got, and then they proceed to drink the blood and the body fluids of the amphibian. And they carry on doing that for about two hours until all that is left is basically a desiccated husk of, of frog and toad bones. They sometimes also consume the flesh. It sounds gory, and it is. What's amazing is how good they are at doing this. Out of 400 experiments, they only actually ended up in the mouth of the predator on seven occasions. But on all seven occasions, they ended up being spat out again. And on one occasion, incredibly, the animal did eat the larva, which is quite large. It's about two centimetres long. It swallows it. You see it bouncing around inside the animal's stomach for about two hours on the video if you want to watch it. The, the animal then regurgitates this larva for some reason. It escapes. You see it come out of its mouth. The frog then comes back over, or the toad comes back over to see what's gone on, and the larva comes back to life, grabs it and eats it. This is an amazing discovery because basically it's one of the only examples known of an animal which should be a prey species for these amphibians becoming the predator. And it's not just preying on something smaller than it, it's preying on something many times larger than it is. And what the scientists think has happened is that it started off as maybe a defence behaviour, having these mouth parts you could bite onto the amphibian and dissuade it from eating you. This has now evolved to become its exclusive lifestyle. So it only eats amphibians. 
And the reason, probably, that the amphibians haven't evolved to recognise this behaviour is that the vast majority of the prey that they do eat are beetles and larvae very similar to these ones, so the vast majority of the meals they have are perfectly safe, and the relative rarity of these has enabled them to fly under the evolutionary radar of these particular frogs and toads so they can continue to be preyed on in this way. That's uh, disturbing, but incredible. And to be honest, I think I would probably regurgitate if my meal was wriggling about inside me for two hours. I think that would be more than enough. Also this week, scientists have come a step closer to reconstructing with a computer the moving images that a person sees, based just on their brain activity. With this fantastic story, here's our reporter Emily Seward to explain. Using a brain scanner, scientists have successfully decoded and reconstructed the visual images experienced by volunteers viewing a sequence of Hollywood movies. Scanning the brain using functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, they matched up how changes in the moving images correlated with changes in brain activity. They were then able to reconstruct the visual images experienced when viewing unseen movies. Published in Current Biology by Professor Jack Gallant and his colleagues from the University of California, Berkeley, this work may lead to communication with brain-injured patients and even being able to watch your own dreams like a video. The goal of our laboratory is to build computational models that describe how your brain processes visual information. And of course, in the real world, when you're walking around, uh, most visual information is dynamic. You see things moving, you move through the environment, and so we want to be able to understand how the brain processes this dynamic information. We came up with a computational model that allows us to predict brain activity to new movies, and they allow us to actually decode brain activity and sort of reconstruct a coarse representation of the movies you saw. Their experiment involved two stages using three volunteers. So this gave us a very long sort of list of individual movies They were short segments of movies like Hollywood movie trailers that were 10 to 20 seconds long, a long list of brain activity. And that told us how the brain responded to individual shapes as they were moving through the displays. As the scanner recorded their brain's responses to the movie information, a computer program matched up how changes in the moving images were correlated with changes in the brain activity. Feeding this into a computational model enabled the researchers to create a dictionary that could be used to decode how the brain responds more generally to moving shapes. This can then be used to create predictions of what the brain is seeing. In the second part of the experiment, we had people go back into the magnet and we showed them a different set of movies that they hadn't seen before. And we used the computational models to predict what movies they were most likely to have seen. And then the computer basically tried to build a reconstruction of what they actually saw. Based on what it had learned from the initial training sessions, the computer was asked to predict what the subjects had been watching, and then, using 100 clips selected from over 18 million seconds of video footage from YouTube, build a reconstruction of what it thought they had seen. Though blurred, the results are breathtaking. But what could this method be used for? The methods we came up with to solve this problem in vision are general. This is a vision experiment, but you could apply a very similar modeling framework to sort of any kind of a dynamic thought process. So if we want to build a communication device, for example, to communicate with stroke patients or people who have uh, neurological diseases that cause them to be locked in so that they can't communicate, having a method to decode dynamic brain activity would 
allow us to essentially communicate with those sorts of people. You can also imagine this would have uh, kinds of interesting applications both for, say, entertainment and therapy. If you can decode movies, then in theory, you can decode, say, dreams from the brain, and that would be kind of an interesting application. All these possibilities are still a little way in the future, but how can improving their algorithm help speed up the process? Well, the algorithm we have right now is limited, but it's limited in two fundamental ways and one kind of trivial way. The first is the reconstructions that we have are essentially limited by computer power and disk space. We're reconstructing a movie that you saw using other movies that you didn't see, strangely enough. And the library of movies that we use to reconstruct what you saw actually affects the quality of reconstructions. So if we get more and more computer power, then our reconstructions get better and better. At a more fundamental level, the reconstructions are limited by the quality of the models we have of the brain. And as the neuroscience develops and the models of the brain get better and better and better, then our ability to reconstruct brain activity and figure out what you saw get better and better. But should you worry that people will be able to read your thoughts as you walk along the street? So it's natural for people to have concerns about the ethics of this process and about potentials for invasion of privacy, and I share those concerns. I think in the long run, say decades out, this kind of brain-reading technology is going to face major ethical issues that are going to have to be addressed and overcome. In the short term, there's no danger of anyone having their brain read without their knowledge because it requires spending several hours in a very large MRI machine, and anyone who was undergoing this procedure would know it. Jack Gallant, ending that report by Emily Seward. Ben. Teaching the immune system to tolerate certain friendly bacteria is a very important step towards gut health, and this week researchers in America have shed some light on how and where those lessons take place. There's a well-known and well-understood way of training the immune system, which occurs in an organ called the thymus. Special immune cells, known as T-cells, are generated with a wide range of antigen receptor molecules, and these are things on the surface that are used to recognise and attach to other molecules. Some of these would interact with our own cells, and that would lead to autoimmune diseases. But in the thymus, these receptors are checked and sorted, with the non-self-reactive T-cells maturing into T-effector cells. They play a role in identifying and attacking infection. And the self-reactive T-cells are either destroyed completely, or they mature into regulatory T-cells, or T-reg cells, which keep other components of the immune system in check. So you've got a system that means that the things that don't recognise you recognise things that are coming from outside, so they are the effectors. The ones that do recognise you, potentially, are there to help damp down the immune response. They're the regulators. They inhibit what would otherwise be a reaction against yourself, yes. And working in mice, Chi Song She and colleagues at Washington University School of Medicine showed that an encounter between these immature T-cells and commensal or friendly gut bacteria could also lead to the creation of these T-regulatory cells and therefore teach the immune system to hold fire against those bacteria. This education happens directly at the site of the encounter, that's in the gut. The researchers noticed that T-regulatory cells around the colon used a different set of antigen receptors from those in other locations in the body, and that these in particular seemed to correlate with the gut bacteria themselves. This meant that the body would interpret bacteria in a similar way to how T-reg cells elsewhere interpret self. Do they comment at all in the paper about... Allergy, because one of the things that's becoming increasingly clear is that those people who have, I want to say dirtier lifestyle, but 
not necessarily dirtier lifestyle, but more exposure to parasites and uh, bacterial burden. For instance, people in third world countries, they have a much lower rate of allergy compared with people who exist in a more sterile environment like in a Western country. They didn't comment in particular on allergies themselves, but it's definitely to do with the same process of training the immune system. They did notice, though, that in mice with colitis, which is an inflammatory condition of the bowel, these receptors were not present on T-regulatory cells, but they were there on the T-effector cells, which is obviously encouraging an adverse reaction to the bacteria. It suggested that a breakdown in this immune education process might lead to diseases like ulcerative colitis and autoimmune diseases like Crohn's disease, even in humans. They still don't know exactly what the mechanism is, but this paper published in Nature I think really marks an important step forward and the first demonstration of T-cell education that happens outside the thymus. And of course it suggests new ways to approach treatment of some of these diseases. Chris? Also this week, scientists have announced that they think they've found the most slippery substance known to man. This is a paper also in the journal Nature. It's by Joanna Eisenberg, who's a researcher at Harvard University, and they've come up with something that they have dubbed SLIPS, appropriately enough. It must be the most appropriate acronym to exist. SLIPS stands for Slippery Liquid Infused Porous Surfaces, and actually it does what it says in the tin. Very clever this, to the extent that I can't believe no one has thought of doing this before. What they do is they take a surface and they decorate it with Teflon. But not just a layer of Teflon, the non-stick stuff, they actually decorate it with tiny fibrils or projections of Teflon which form a surface which is microporous. In other words, it has lots of little nooks and crannies and holes in it. They then flow onto that surface a liquid, which is another chemical, which is a fluorine-rich organic inert substance called fluorinur FC70. There are others that they also tested, but that was one of them. This stuff is made chemically very similar to Teflon. So it tends to like sticking to the Teflon and flowing around the nooks and crannies around the Teflon, but it won't, and this is the critical thing, mix with oil or water-based products. So what this means is you have a surface with this liquid forming a droplet over the surface. And if you then try to drop another liquid, oil, water, ice, even blood onto that surface, effectively the two liquids meet but they won't mix and as you know if you've ever seen an avalanche or you've slid on a pavement when it's in the ice or you've been to an ice rink, it's very slippery, two liquids, very low friction between them. So the things that are dropped on just slide straight off. And the really amazing thing is because it is a liquid and liquids are incompressible, this will work under enormous pressures. So you can ramp the pressure up, uh, say in a drilling rig underground, to more than 700 atmospheres and it won't fail because the liquid stays anchored to the surface and continues to be non-slip. And, and so they say that the possible applications include things like anti-icing surfaces, which are very, very light. Also, you could use it for safe transportation of fuel because the fuel wouldn't stick onto the surface, so you'll get very low drag against surfaces in fuel tanks. And more trivially, even anti-graffiti coverings and coatings could be made using this stuff. So how did they come up with this? I know before they've looked at the, the lotus leaf effect, where you take plant leaves that seem to repel everything. You can even pour honey on them and they just pour straight off. Is it similarly inspired by nature? It was, ironically. This one, though, is not a lotus leaf but a pitcher plant. Um, the interesting thing about this is if you look at the bit of the pitcher where the insects are attracted to, the plant puts a chemical there that attracts the, the insect. The surface of the plant there, though, has all these tiny pillars which attract a layer of water 
and the water gets into all the nooks and crannies, just like the liquid in this invention. So when the insect lands on that area, the oil on its feet won't mix with the water clinging to the surface of the pitcher plant, so it's very slidey, and the insect then goes into the pitcher and becomes lunch for the plant. Now, obviously, if you used water, then you'd have a problem, because if you then tried to make make it repel or, uh, or have a water-based chemical slide past it, it wouldn't work. But by using this Fluorina FC70 chemical, which won't mix with oil or water, but does like clinging to the surface, you've solved that problem and you can repel all kinds of substances and make it really slippery. Thank you, Chris. And now, with a look at what else has been making scientific headlines, here's Mirasantha Lingam with this week's Naked Scientist's Newsflash. Scientists might have found particles travelling faster than the speed of light. The OPERA experiment sent a beam of subatomic neutrino particles from the CERN facility in Geneva to the Grand Sasso Laboratory 732 kilometres away in Italy. The neutrinos appeared to have travelled 0.0025% faster than the speed of light, a finding which, if confirmed, could revolutionise modern physics. CERN's James Gillies comments on the discovery. Everybody in physics is going to be looking for an independent measurement before they could decide whether this is true or whether it's not. A lot lot of people seem to think that science is about proving things, and it's actually the opposite. Science is about knocking things down, it's about disproving stuff happens all the time. What's different this time is that the stakes are that much higher because speed of light being a a cosmic speed limit is one of the fundamental tenets of physics. So if this turns out to be right, then uh, there's some serious head scratching to be done. A compound found in the liver of dogfish sharks could treat a range of human viruses. The compound squalamine was found to be effective against diseases such as dengue, yellow fever and hepatitis B and D in animal models by altering the environment needed for the viruses to survive inside a cell. As Michael Zasloff from Georgetown University explains. What squalamine has taught us is that by changing the characteristics of a cell or a tissue, it can render that cell or that tissue resistant to a virus. So it is not targeting the virus. It's basically changing the design, the internal architecture of a cell to make that cell or tissue inhospitable for viral replication or viral growth. Water could be used to provide limitless supplies of hydrogen. Microbial fuel cells harness the breakdown of organic matter by bacteria in order to produce hydrogen, but electricity is needed to power the process. Until now, this has been provided by fossil fuels, but Bruce Logan from Penn State University has developed a new way using water. What we figured out was that we could use the salinity difference between fresh water and salt water. This is a process called reverse electrodialysis, where if you have a fresh water and a salt water next to each other, that can create energy. It's like running uphill takes energy, running downhill doesn't take energy. And now you have a system where the electrical power isn't needed because the energy is being extracted from the salinity difference. And finally, female promiscuity could be beneficial to a population. Working with flower beetles, Matthew Gage from the University of East Anglia found that females in small populations, where there's a higher risk of inbreeding, behave promiscuously in order to increase their chances of reproductive success. Females were able to have their eggs fertilised by males that carried genes that had greater complementarity. And what that translated into was... Females are gaining genetic benefits by mating with more males because they're able to somehow choose the right males or the right sperm to give greater genetic benefits to their offspring and so have higher offspring viability and leave more offspring in the next generation.
generation. The team aimed to explore further benefits of promiscuity in larger populations in order to explain why the behaviour is so widespread across the animal kingdom. Mira Senthalingam with this week's Naked Scientist News Flash. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories you've heard so far, transcripts and the references are all available at thenakedscientists.com slash news. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Ben Valsler. This week we're discussing the science of food and very soon we'll be joining Ben Valsler in his own kitchen where he'll be baking a scientific cake. But first, when Turner and Constable first painted Stonehenge about 200 years ago, the very famous monument was surrounded by species-rich chalk grasslands. However, the need to grow food after World War II saw these grasslands turn into arable fields. But the landscape is changing once again. In the year 2000, the National Trust, with help from local landowners and scientists from the University of Reading, began what's called the Stonehenge Landscape Restoration Project. Its aim is to restore the landscape surrounding the monument by recreating the chalk grasslands and reintroducing biodiversity to the area. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson went to one of the restored fields to meet two of the team, starting with the National Trust's countryside manager for Wiltshire, Chris Gingell. What we did in 2000 was to bring a small quantity of seed harvested from Salisbury Plain to the great ancient grasslands to the north of here uh, and, and to grow a crop in the field adjoining us here, Seven Barrows Field, with that naturally har- harvested natural grass. So the field that we're by the edge of right here with all this lovely swaying grassland and I can see a few sort of yellows of wildflowers and purples in the distance. This wasn't like this in 2000, 10 years or so ago. No, this was another field of winter weeds and so on. In this field we grew the first stand of this flower-rich grassland and used this as, if you like, the nursery site to harvest further seed and every one to two years another large arable field has been converted from corn to grassland with seed either harvested here or now the programme sort of rolls on so that some of the fields that were laid down six or seven years ago are now being in, in turn harvested. And in that field I found Grace Twiston Davis from the University of Reading about to perform a butterfly survey. Basically when I do the survey I just need a survey sheet which so I can just write down what butterflies I see and an identification sheet which just helps me with some of the female butterflies. Some of the blues are quite difficult to identify, so I have that as well in a pen. And I have a stopwatch as well, because I often do about a 30-minute survey. Talk me through okay. exactly what you do. We'll walk in a straight line for about 100 metres, quite slowly, and we'll look either side of us, about 10 metres either side, and we'll see what butterflies in the transect. OK, well, let's walk about 10 metres or so through the grass. I've seen some meadow browns. There's a few meadow browns fluttering about. Gosh, you must have extremely good eyesight. <laughs> it's the way they fly. They fly very distinctively, almost like they're on a piece of string. They kind of bob up and down. So, oh, a blue. I can see a blue over there. It's probably a common blue. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, lovely. Sorry, you do have to have good <laughs> eyes for this. Well done. Yeah, so that's, that's a male common blue there. It's almost there. like it's ringed with a pale white. White, yes. yes. So how many species of butterflies have you observed in this beautiful, recreated chalk grassland? 
Well, last year when I did the surveys, we saw over 20 different species. Common blues, we saw small heaths, small tortoise shells, Adonis blues, small blues. Oh, it's interesting. You mentioned Adonis blues because they've not been as sort of successful, have they, in terms of returning to the sites as other species of butterfly? Yes, that's because the Adonis blue are mainly at the old chalk grassland fragments that are still on this landscape. So we only see them in the new restored fields when they're coming to look for nectar in the, the new flowers that are there. But they're quite specialised. And they'll only lay their eggs on horseshoe vetch and their caterpillars will only eat horseshoe vetch. And that's a plant that's very restricted to these old fragments. But we're hoping that in the future that the horseshoe vetch will become established in the, the new restored fields and we can expand their populations. Right, well, let's walk back through the grass towards... Chris. Hi Chris, it's all gone really well. It was rather beautiful to see. It's nice to see you sheltering from the wind in your <laughs> National Trust Land Rover. When for you will you consider this restoration project complete? I suppose what we're doing is, is perhaps not something that, that in a sense has a completion, but something which will be its own sustainable long-term future as a, as a landscape. And that really is a question of scale. I think we've all known for a very long time that our protected sites, little fragments of the countryside that have much of their biodiversity interest are many, many of them too small, too isolated, too fragmented. And one of the things which Grace's work will help us to understand here is just how extensive does this have to be to have that long-term viability and for the, the free movement of plants and animals without so much intervention. What we've done, of course, is in the last 10 years, is intervention. But for that grassland to persist with all its character and interest in the future. Chris Gingell from the National Trust and Grace Twiston-Davies from the University of Reading. They were explaining the Stonehenge Landscape Restoration Project to Sue Nelson. As usual, you can hear more from the Planet Earth team online at thenakedscientists.com slash planetearth. But now, let's get baking. Over to Ben. Thanks, Chris. This week we're discussing the science of food, so what better way than to explore the scientific basis for the perfect cake? I'm joined by Amy Chesterton, a PhD student at Cambridge University. So, Amy, other than the very obvious reason of tastiness, why would a scientist care about cake? Well, I work in a research group and we're interested in powders and pastes generally, especially those relevant to the food and pharmaceutical companies. Cake is particularly scientifically interesting, firstly because the structure is caused by mixing and many ingredients, and secondly because of the changes that occur during baking. Now I see that we have the ingredients out here already. We have eggs, flour, and we have a mixture of butter and sugar. Now that takes a while to beat, so we've already started it, but why is that important? Well, the mixing of the fat and the sugar is important because the most important ingredient is air. So we're beating the fat and the sugar together to incorporate lots and lots of bubbles. OK, so as I said, we've already given it a good go. Let's just finish it off properly. So I'm obviously putting lots of bubbles into this. What's the next thing that needs to go in? Well, fat and sugar by itself doesn't make a cake because on heating, the fat will melt and the bubbles will escape to the atmosphere. So now I'm adding the egg. What we want to do is cover all of our fat-covered bubbles in egg because the heat on baking will cause the eggs to solidify, the proteins to denature, and that will keep the air in the cake and the cake structure up itself. 
So mixing now isn't really to add any extra bubbles. We've already got our bubbles in there. Now we're just making sure those bubbles are evenly coated with egg. But if the bubbles are already in there from the fat and sugar, and now we're coating them with the egg that will give it structure, what's the flour for? Well, the flour also is an important structure aid. Together with the protein from the egg scaffolding, the starch within the flour will swell and with the heat it will gelatinize, create a gel and together create a very firm, nice, tender structure. Okay, well let's get the flour in there. there. It's still a little bit lumpy at the moment so we need to make sure we mix that in properly. I'll let you pour that in. How much of each ingredient did we actually start with? Well, we're following the most basic cake recipe. That's equal quantities of our four ingredients. Fat, sugar, flour and egg. It's similar to the Victoria sponge. It's the recipe that the Victoria sponge recipe is based on. Now, we're using an electric hand whisk, which may be perceived as cheating. But really, it's very important to make sure that you get that air in there. What sort of flour are you using? Because I know that some flour will actually help give extra bubbles. We're using uh, self-raising flour. So there's added baking powder in there. On contact with the wet ingredients, that will release carbon dioxide and increase the size of our bubbles. Also, on heating, carbon dioxide will be released to further expand. You said increase the size of our bubbles. Surely if we're creating carbon dioxide, that's going to give us new extra bubbles. Well, actually, the whisking at the start, the creaming process, is so important because the number of bubbles in our batter will be the number of bubbles in our final cake. The carbon dioxide released by the baking powder can only increase the size of the bubbles and that's because the surface tension is too high for new bubbles to be created. We've got quite a nice smooth paste here now we are going to put these into uh, little muffin tins and we're going to pop this in the oven. What temperature does it need to be on and do you think we'll get to eat them before the show's over? Well yeah we're going to go at 180 degrees and because we're making cupcakes they should be ready by the end of the show. Excellent. So we're going to start spooning them into our cupcakes now and then we'll pop them in the oven and later on in the show we'll come back to see how our cake is doing. Ben, thank you very much. Make sure you save me a cake. Uh, we're here in the studio hungrily anticipating the arrival of these cupcakes. It is Cheese Awareness Week, would you believe? I didn't know there was one, but there is. And so, coming up very shortly, we'll be talking about the science of cheese, how you make cheese, and also the role that microbes play in helping us to make cheese and flavour cheese, more importantly. And also waiting in the, ring, in the wings is Dr Nick Brown, who's a microbiologist, and he'll be talking about what happens when things can go wrong. And also best before dates. So what do you think about food best before dates? Tell us. You can write on our Facebook page... You go to thenakedscientist.com slash Facebook and it will take you to our Facebook page or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. The email address, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Ben Valsler, who's in his kitchen cooking up some delightful treats. We are celebrating British Food Fortnight, uh, as it allegedly is, and also Cheese Week, and uh, we're trying to celebrate the diverse range of food that Britain produces, and 
no better than that, it's cheese. Food production involves enormous amounts of science, and cheese is a very good example. It's made from milk with the help of millions of microbes. Now, I've got a cheese board in front of me here. It's got some pretty famous cheese on it. Not all of them are British. What have we got here? Um, I've got a cheddar, a stilton, a camembert, and an emmental. And here to talk me through the science that's helped to make these is Professor Martin Adams. He's from the University of Surrey, where he's the Professor of Food Microbiology. He's got some cheese with him, too. Hello, Martin. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Um, first of all, can we just run through the basic process that enables us to make cheese in the first place? How does it get made? It starts with uh, a lactic acid bacterial culture that uh, is added to the milk. Once that lactic acid culture starts working, it converts the milk sugar lactose to lactic acid. And then an enzyme preparation called rennet uh, is added, which causes the casein in the milk, the milk protein, to coagulate. And so the whole of the milk forms a, a solid coagulum. And all the while, the bacteria ca carrying on producing acid from the lactose in the milk. The coagulum is then cut, and when it's cut, it starts to separate into curds and whey, the liquid phase. And then it goes through various sort of manipulations, further processing to separate the curd from the whey, and you end up with the curd which goes to make the cheese. And it's essentially those simple processes by slight variations in them. Uh, sorting, I should, uh, I forgot to mention that at the very end, of course, the curds are salted. Uh, and those sort of basic steps of lactic fermentation, addition of the enzyme, the curd cutting, the removal of the whey and salting, just by variations, slight variations in that, you can make this huge array of different cheeses. So the bacteria that are added right at the beginning that do this souring process, the lactic acid bacteria, they're presumably quite a special strain of bacteria that are used to do that. Yes, they're normally, in the case of cheddar cheese making, an organism called Lactococcus lactis. And uh, traditionally, these would have been naturally present in the dairy environment. But of course, nowadays, uh, they need to be much more... Uh, assured of control of these processes and so they add a culture, a starter culture as it's called of Lactococcus lactis that is produced industrially and that, 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 that those bacteria are, uh, are really the primary microflora um, Just opening this one here, because I've got a cheddar here so if I just take a little piece of this it's a very firm cheese but, but still yes. nonetheless quite springy and moist it's quite tasty um, mm. it's quite a, a sharp taste to it what actually goes into making, say, a, a cheddar like this? How would you do that? The first stage, uh, the, the lactic acid production by the primary starter culture is really just the start of it. You end up with a curd that has been salted. And when you add the salt, the starter culture stops growing. It's inhibited by the salt. But what happens in cheddar cheese, as it matures or ripens, you get a secondary microflora, which are known as non-starter lactic acid bacteria. And these have not been added, they're just naturally present in the milk or in the environment and they get into the cheese. And these grow, and they grow up to levels about 10 million per gram in the course of a few weeks of uh, ripening. It's a combination of proteolytic enzymes, lipolytic enzymes that are still present from the starter organism, although the starter organism can't grow any longer, its enzymes can still be active. They're also residual proteolytic activity from the rennet that's been added and there's enzyme activities from these non-starter lactic acid bacteria and so they particularly in the case of cheddar they break down the uh, the proteins to produce uh, 
peptides that give that sort of meaty, sort of savoury, salty flavour to the product. And as, as the uh, cheese matures, so that flavour becomes stronger. That's a very high bacterial density, isn't it? Does that then mean that, that quite a significant weight of the cheese that you're eating does contain viable bacteria? If I took my block of cheddar here and I actually did a gram stain for microorganisms under a microscope, if I, if I emulsified the cheese, would I see viable organisms in there? Yeah, you should be able to see uh, the non-starter bacteria. Normally, they're, they're rod-shaped bacteria. The starter used in cheddar cheese making, Lactococcus lactis, is a coccus, a, a spherical bacterium, whereas the most common non-starter lactic acid bacteria tends to be Lactobacillus casei, Lactobacillus paracasei, so you, you'd see them quite, uh, they'd be quite evident. So does it make a difference if you use pasteurised milk, which has effectively been rendered sterile then? You would, you would presumably have to put those back in. Well, you don't. That's the uh, interesting thing is that uh, certainly people claim that if you use unpasteurised milk because you don't destroy the natural flora of the milk, you get a much more flavoursome cheese. And that probably is the case, that you do get a stronger flavour. But even if you pasteurise the milk, these bacteria, some of them may survive pasteurisation, but others may just be present in the environment and they grow as biofilms on equipment and so on, so they just naturally contaminate the environment, but in a good way. It's convenient. Now, the other cheese I've got here is, is a bit whiffy, and this one, of course, you can probably predictably guess, this is a blue cheese. I think you've got some Stilton in front of you. Yeah. I've got some Danish blue. Um, Stilton, obviously, English cheese, Danish blue, presumably ancestrally Danish. This yeah. is very different. I mean, if I take a slice through this one, I see that this is absolutely riddled with A, holes, and B, a lot of those holes are full of what looks like the same stuff that grows on your loaf when it goes mouldy. Yeah, the, the first stage in making a, a Stilton cheese would be similar to cheddar in that they would add a starter culture which produces uh, lactic acid from the, uh, the lactose in the, in the milk. But um, they would also add mould spores, and in blue cheese the mould is uh, Penicillium roquefortii. When they've made the cheese, moulds need air to grow, so what they do is they, they make the cheese in a way to have a fairly open texture with some sort of cracks in it to have have some air there but they also stick needles through the blocks of cheese and if you look very carefully at uh, if you you know a substantial sized piece of stilton you'll see the tracks of these holes of where they put needles through to allow air into the cheese to allow the mold spores to germinate and the the mold mycelium to grow throughout the cheese and the blue color you actually see is the uh, is the mold spores when the mold has sporulated what about the flavour? Is that imparted by the growth of that mould inside the cheese? Yeah, very much so. It's, uh, the mould's much more sort of metabolically active and will, uh, produces lipase and proteases and produces a whole range of breakdown products from the components in the cheese, things like methyl ketones, lactones uh, and, and so on, which all and fatty acids, all of which give the... Uh, characteristic flavour to that cheese. Thank you, Martin. That's Professor Martin Adams. He's from the University of Surrey. Um, he's got a cheese board and so have I. We will be tucking in when uh, 
we go to Ben in just a second to find out how the cake baking is going. Incidentally, if you were interested in that piece all about how you make cheese, we have made a little video. Um, this is one of our Naked Scientist scrapbook episodes, which you can find on YouTube if you look up Naked Scientist scrapbook. But if you go to thenakedscientist.com slash scrapbook, you can see Sarah Caster Perry's latest video all about how you use microbes to make cheese. It's terrific. Check it out. Right, let's go back to Ben and the kitchen science that's going on over there. Ben, how's it, how are you getting on? Thanks, Chris. My kitchen is now filling with the smell of cake. It's smelling delicious in here. And the mixture that we poured in earlier, that was fat, sugar, egg, flour, and importantly, air, is now starting to rise. Amy, what's actually happening inside the oven? Well, at the moment, we're at the early stages of baking. So heat is being transferred from the oven to the cake mixture and transforming it into something else. We can see the cakes physically rising now, and that's because the tiny bubbles that we incorporated earlier are starting to grow by three mechanisms. We've got thermal expansion, because air expands when it's hot. We've got water vapour, which is starting to be produced, and also carbon dioxide from the baking powder. So there's lots of different processes going on physically inside there, including tiny steam engines taking advantage of the expansion of water as it turns into vapour. But what about the chemical changes that are happening, the changes to, to the proteins we were talking about earlier? Well, depending on the exact temperature at the moment, if we're above 60 degrees or so, we'll start to have starch granules expanding. They'll eventually disrupt and form a gel. The proteins will all say so do nature, uh, at similar temperatures. So we'll start to get the structure forming. So the structure's already forming, it's growing, it smells delicious. Can I get this open and start tasting them now? At the moment, no. All of our bubbles are still surrounded predominantly by liquid. So the cake shape and size that we can see is held up by pneumatic support. If we removed it, everything would cool down, the bubbles would contract because of the thermal expansion in reverse and the water vapour would condense and we would have very poor looking cakes. So is it safe to open it and have a look or is it best just to leave it alone until they're perfect? Again, because we don't want the batter to cool down at all, it's not a good idea to open the door or remove the cakes yet. You'll just have to wait for later. <laughs> so we'll have to wait a little bit longer before we get to taste the cake. In the meantime, if you have any questions on food, including cheese or even food poisoning, that's coming up next, then please get in touch. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page, that's at thenakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or drop us an email. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Ben Vowsler. Today we're looking at the science of food. And one very important issue about food is safety. There are millions of people every year ending up locked to loose eats for longer than they'd like. Try saying that when you've had a few, just because of something that they ate. But what are the risks and how can we reduce them? And are best before dates actually helpful? Well, to help us look into this is Dr Nick Brown. He's a consultant medical microbiologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital. Hello, Nick. Afternoon. Now, tell us first of all, when food goes off, when we say off, what actually is happening? This is um, a natural process. Um, 
I mean, if we, we start with things that uh, um, haven't got best before dates on um, or, or anything like that that we see from the supermarket, like often fruits, uh, vegetables and so on, we know that if we keep them for a long period of time, they start to deteriorate. They either go squidgy or they change colour or um, sometimes they smell horrible and certainly the texture and taste can be affected as well. And we've heard already about natural bacteria in cheeses. Well, uh, a lot of other foods have natural bacteria too. And this is a, a process that is occurring all the time, the, the process of decay or food spoilage. So I think that's an important distinction, though, isn't it, between food that's spoiled and breaks down and just turns mushy but isn't necessarily bad for you and food that has got things in it that could make you quite unwell. Absolutely. I mean, the, the classical things that can harm you, of course, are, are uh, meat products. Uh, often these are contaminated with food poisoning organisms such as, for example, Campylobacter or Salmonella. If you do not cook these uh, foods properly, then you can be affected by the, the illnesses that these organisms cause. But where did that food get those particular organisms in the first place? Well, they can get them from a variety of places. We know that um, many foods contain organisms already. Uh, we've heard about cheese from milk, for example, and from the environment. But often meat products are contaminated with organisms that are acquired from the organisms and the, the, the animal themselves. So the animal has the organism, for example, in its gut, and then when we prepare the meat, the meat is contaminated. Another way, of course, that it can get contaminated is by virtue of the processing itself. So if you have a product, for example, a, a cold meat, a, a prepared meat that you're going to eat and it's stored in an appropriate, inappropriate way next to raw meat, then it can be contaminated by cross-contamination. I did read somewhere that when chickens are prepared, for example, although only a small fraction of chickens may carry salmonella naturally in their guts at a at a reasonable level. Because of the way they're prepared, many of the carcasses are put through a vat of ice-cold water to rapidly chill them down after they've been plucked. And so if one of them has some salmonella in it and on it, it then contaminates the water, which means that pretty much all of them come out with at least some. I mean, that would be an example of the way in which a process can contaminate a wide range of different products, yes. Now, what about um, actually when you've cooked some meat? Say, say we cook said chicken... I can eat it cold after I've cooked it and let it cool, but what about reheating it? Because there seems to be a lot of confusion around that. People often say, well, it's cooked, you shouldn't reheat it, or if you do reheat it, you've got to reheat it properly. What's the actual bottom line on this? Well, of course, when you cook food, then um, most of the microorganisms that cause food poisoning are very sensitive to heat, so the numbers uh, are reduced very rapidly. But on storage, even if there are one or two left behind, then they can become they can replicate very quickly. So over time, the product can almost become recontaminated, if you like. Therefore, that is a danger if if you uh, don't heat it properly through before eating it. In other words, you would heat it, but insufficiently to destroy the organisms, but sufficiently to warm them up enough so they grow faster. They then turn a, a, a non-infectious dose into an infectious dose and you then catch whatever they've got to give away absolutely yes and some organisms have a different mechanism they can produce toxins that can cause food poisoning as well for example staphylococcus aureus an organism that's on our, many of our, our skins can contaminate particularly dairy products if then this then is given the opportunity to replicate it can produce a variety of different toxins that can act on on the gut and usually causing sort of upper gut problems, particularly nausea, vomiting, rather than diarrhoea itself. And when you reheat the food, doesn't matter how hot you make it, that toxin doesn't break down? 
The bacteria um, do, the toxin doesn't necessarily. Absolutely. Some of these toxins are, are, are heat-stable, so, so they're not broken down again. Now, what about the dreaded best-before date, then? Is this a safeguard? How do supermarkets and vendors work out, well, we're going to put this particular date on an item of food, and that means it's safe, and then it goes past midnight, and it's the day after the best-before date. No, it's not. There's actually quite a lot of confusion about this, um, and partly that's because there are a lot of different ways that food can be labelled. Um, food can have sell-by dates, display-until dates, and these are largely for the use of the, the shop itself for and, and relate to quality of food. But then you've got best-before dates and, importantly, use-before dates, and I think that these two are different. Uh, best-before dates, as it suggests, uh, implies that the food will be start to deteriorate and won't be as good as it was before after the best before date um, but is not actually dangerous whereas the use before date really does say that you should be uh, consuming the product before the end of that and there often there is evidence to show that it does deteriorate and become not, not always dangerous but it has the potential to be dangerous if you eat it afterwards. So the, the bottom line is let's use the use by date but we could disregard the best before and, and still probably get away with it okay. <laughs> still get away with it, but it might not be as good as it was before. Indeed. Thank you, Nick. Nick Brown, who's a consultant medical microbiologist from Addenbrooke's Hospital. He's with us for the rest of the programme. If you would like to ask any questions about food-related illness, microbes that grow in food and safe food practices, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Right now, let's get back to Ben and Amy. Hopefully the proof of the pudding is in the eating, or in this case, the cake, Ben. Well, it's now time to actually take it out of the oven. Here's the moment of truth. So we're going to see what the cakes look like. Here they come. Obviously, if you're doing this at home, be very careful that this bit's hot. Oh, they look delicious. And that waft of smell that came out. They are they're beautifully, I'm just going to poke one part of my fingers, beautifully soft, spongy, and they've got a gorgeous brown on the top. Amy, what's what's happened now? Well, at the end of the baking, we've got Maillard reactions occurring. That produces a nice brown colour and also the distinct cooked taste of the crust. So the Maillard reaction is actually a reaction between the protein or the amino acids and the sugars, producing hundreds of flavour compounds. Now, this is the same reaction that we see when you fry chips or when you roast a chicken. So it's a set of reactions that produce these distinct colours and that distinct flavour profile that gives you that gorgeous oven-cooked or roasted or fried flavour. Yeah, that's right. And I'm just cutting into one now to have a look. And we can see that on the inside, we've not got such a brown colour. That's because the inside of the cake had quite a lot of moisture right until the end of baking. So the Maillard reactions wouldn't have really happened. They occur at higher temperatures than the inside of the cake would have achieved. But the crust, which heats up hotter, heats up quicker, will have dehydrated and Maillard reactions occurred. So that's why we get the crispy outerness. So if we'd left it in there for too long, then eventually it would have all got to the right temperature. Those reactions would have occurred all the way through and this would have turned into a, a stiff, crunchy, well, a biscuit rather than a cake. Uh, yeah, although probably the crust would have got too hot at that point and, and turned into a nice black, dark, non-edible. <laughs> well, that would have been an absolute travesty. And it has maintained its structure now. We've taken it out and it hasn't collapsed. So can we assume that the starch and the egg protein has locked in that structure for us? Yeah, so it would have uh, solidified towards the end of baking and that actually stops the bubbles from expanding. They can't expand when the cake is solid. So instead, you get 
the bubbles sort of popping and forming a continuous network, which is why when we open it, we can see this nice open structure rather than individual small bubbles. See, it doesn't look like, although it is a sponge cake, it doesn't look like a bathroom sponge, which has those lots of little tiny holes. It is a very nice, and I'm going to have to try some now. Amy's nibbling away on this and I'm getting quite jealous. It's, oh, it's lovely. Oh, that's spot on. Chris, I'm afraid I don't think any of these will make it back to the studio. But why would scientists need to know about how cake actually functions? You said before that these pastes are interesting, but how can we apply the science of cake to other industry? And of course, how can we apply other science to make better cake? Well, the structure of our final cake here was completely determined by the batter we made it from. And that's true of products produced industrially, in all sort of se- sorts of sectors. So it's the relationship between the paste and the final product which is scientifically interesting and something which I'm interested in as a researcher. So that might include, obviously in our case it's cake, but that might include actually how you mix and manufacture, say, a pharmaceutical product. Because again, that you need to make sure that the final product is very well understood, very homogenous and almost identical from one batch to the next. So it's understanding these processes, be they in drugs or in delicious cake, that really is what scientists are looking into. Yeah, it's useful for quality control and also for development of new products. Well, thank you ever so much. That's Amy Chesterton from Cambridge University. She is going to stay with us to answer your cake-based questions. So if you would like to get in touch, then email chris at thenakedscientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page, that's at thenakedscientists.com slash Facebook. And we've already had a comment on Facebook with somebody who claims to have the best possible recipe for cake. Go and have a look at thenakedscientists.com slash Facebook and see if it is really as good as he claims. Chris. Thank you very much, Ben. We've heard from, um, on Second Life, Princess Nikki Snowpaw says, mmm, cupcakes, you're making me hungry. But don't worry, because Nick and I are enjoying the cheese here in the studio. So you may not have saved us any cakes, but we are not going to save you any of that delicious cheese. From protons to photons and gluons to muons, the Naked Scientists, science that's fundamentally more fun. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, Ben Vowsler, and we're joined by our food scientists and microbiology crowd this week. Amy Chesterton is in Ben's kitchen knocking up some posh nosh. Nick Brown is here in the studio. He's a medical microbiologist. And we have Martin Adams, who is a food scientist. Nick, quite a few people here are making an important point, and I'll take just Mark's point, as Mark in Bletchley Towers, as he says. He says, I tend to smell food on its use-by date, as I've been known to throw food away before the date, especially with poultry. Um, A number of people are pointing out about using smell. Is this a good gauge of whether food is safe? It can be, but I think there's another important point there as well. You often throw food away before the cell. Just because it's got a date on it doesn't necessarily mean it's safe up until that point. It hasn't been stored properly. Uh, But yes, smell can be an indicator that the spoilage process is starting, um, though it's one of several things that that, that, that obviously you might use. And just to acknowledge, June in Braintree says um, you should be most careful with meat and cheese and milk. It sometimes goes off before it's used by date. Um, Nelson Couture has got a very interesting question, um, which I think probably one for you, Martin. He says, I enjoy Stilton's 
blue cheese. However, I wonder if regular consumption of this cheese would contribute to antibiotic resistance, given that you said that strains of penicillium mould are used in its manufacture. What do you think? Uh, it's not a problem because the mould in cheese making doesn't produce penicillin. It's a different species that's used to make penicillin. Aha, uh-huh. well that's reassuring. You said penicillium rock 40, so it's related yeah. but you couldn't make it's antibiotics with it. penicillium chrysogenum and notatum that produce penicillin. Okay. The antibiotic, yeah. So if I scrape all that nice fluff off of my bread, I can't argue that I'm going to be pathologically uh, abiotic and non-infected <laughs> with things. It won't make any antibiotic molecules. No. <laughs> well, while you're there, um, Rebecca Stone has got in touch. She sent us an email to chris at thenakedscientist.com. She said, I recently bought a packet of gorgonzola cheese, opened it up, and the mould on the inside was yellow. I thought it might have gone bad, but then I smelled and tasted it, and it was fine. She's brave. I left the cheese on the counter, and an hour later, I came back, and the mould was blue. My theory was that once it was exposed to oxygen, it must have changed colour, but I don't know why that would happen. What do you think? Well, the blue colour is due to the spores, and... Penicillin rock fulci grows at very low oxygen concentrations, but it needs higher oxygen concentrations to sporulate. So it may be that the mould had grown throughout the cheese and made the cheese, but it was the exposure to more air that caused it to sporulate and get the blue colour. Thank you very much, Martin. One for Amy. Um, Janet Darling Roden has emailed in and says, My friend and I found a cake in the freezer today. The label on the cover of it had a date August the 8th, the year 2000. My God. It smells and looks fine, she says, if a bit dry. Is it safe to eat something that's been kept from moulding for this long? What do you think, Amy? Um, Well, in terms of the microbiology... Uh, I'm not really an expert, but in terms of how the cake will be now compared to when it was first frozen... The problem could be the development of large ice crystals over time. You see, small ice crystals are okay, but over time they can grow as the temperature in the freezer fluctuates and the crystals melt and refreeze. This can dry the cake by removing all its moisture and the crystals can get so big that they cut into the cake, affecting the structure. So it doesn't taste as good. I would expect not. Thank you for that, Amy. Um, I like this question from Paul Massey. This is probably one for you, Nick. He says, I like sell-by dates. Being a student, I can get stuff cheaper. There is a minor risk, but I bet that a sandwich that has a sell-by date of a Sunday is still edible on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, and I can get the sandwich for less than half price. Is his strategy a sound one? I think it is. I mean, uh, obviously, many of the listeners will be aware that there's been quite a discussion over the last couple of weeks about sell-by dates and whether we should have them or or not, and indeed a proposal that we should get rid of them. I think, by and large, they're a mechanism for the the sellers um, to use stock rotation to to make sure their produce is as it should be, uh, rather than anything to do specifically with food safety. Okay, so you're all right, Paul. You can make your grant go a little bit further by eating those half-price sandwiches for a bit longer. But you didn't, didn't, don't quote us if you end up in A&E. Martin, here's a a good one probably for you. Jasper Ackroyd says, it seems that many moulds are absolutely fine along the lines of what you're saying with the cheese. Um, Not all of them taste great, but you can scrape them off without any ill effects in most cases. They're on things like cheese and salami. But what moulds are a problem? Uh, Moulds that are a problem are those that produce mycotoxins, things like uh, Aspergillus flavus produces aflatoxin. Uh, This commonly occurs on nuts uh, in particular. But um, generally speaking, that's that's the the principal threat from uh, moulds is production of toxins. Okay, well, thankfully, I haven't got any mouldy food to feed anybody here in the studio. Rosemary is on the line. She's in Somersham. Hello, Rosemary. Hello. What's your question? 
Well, my question was, why don't animals and birds get food poisoning? Do they, Nick? What do you think? Well, I guess sometimes they might, but they just don't tell us. But I think that there are some important differences between animals and ourselves. Um, Many animals, of course, live on decaying, rotting carcasses and are designed to be able to cope with that. So one of the main protections that we've got against food poisoning is the acid in our stomachs. And uh, some animals are uh, able to ingest food poisoning organisms and destroy them um, within their stomachs before they get down to the gut. And then there are other animals that we know carry food poisoning organisms naturally. So uh, we gave some examples in the program, but uh, chickens and Campylobacter and uh, Salmonellas, uh, cattle and E. coli 0157, for example, uh, where they don't seem to be affected by the illness because presumably they don't have the right receptors in their gut for the organism to bind and then cause disease. So the bottom line is that those animals in nature that are not equipped with the ability to cook and keep food clean are therefore endowed with better immunity, better resistance mechanisms, or just don't actually respond to whatever toxin it is the organism uses to make us ill. Absolutely. Okay, Rosemary, I hope that uh, floats your boat, microbiologically speaking. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Rosemary. It's great to have you with us. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Nick, let's move on, because I like this one from Pekka Oilinki, who wrote in on Facebook and said, While I travelled around Southeast Asia, I made a conscious decision, I will eat whatever the locals are eating. This way, I got two-way diarrhoea twice a year, but it's nothing compared with all the enjoyments of the food and taste that I got to experience. Is this whole idea of eating what the locals eat and where they eat, is that a valid strategy to fend off food poisoning? I don't think the strategy in itself fends off food poisoning. The most important thing is the precautions that are taken to make sure the food is safe and that it's prepared properly. One common saying for for travellers abroad is that whenever you have any food, make sure that you wash it, peel it and cook it. Uh, And I think the same principles apply wherever you're eating. Okay, but I mean the whole idea about people who live in an area having the local bacteria which in some way protect them better, is that actually scientifically sound, that argument? Uh, I'm not aware of any evidence to support that. Um, some people anecdotally I know suggest that it's it's true but I'm not aware of any evidence to support that Okay, so maybe one not to risk then Um, Rebecca Severin has also been on Facebook Uh, she's concerned about making homemade preserves and things and she says with regard to home canning you follow a recipe to make sure it's safe but if I wanted to make my own salsa for example um, is there a way you can make sure you're always doing it safely and can you test it to make sure that you haven't done something that might make you unwell? Most of the way that we ensure that uh, um, food is safe in this respect is to make sure that the process that we go through is is appropriate so that um, we've cooked things for the appropriate uh, time or we've added the right ingredients or that it's reached the right temperature for example Uh, and then afterwards once we've preserved it that we make sure that it uh, uh, appears as it should do so for tinning for example if a tin is blown or damaged in any other way then clearly the the, the product inside it might be uh, inappropriate to eat Um, the same with with jams and other other preserves if they clearly do not look right uh, or, or taste right then something might be wrong Sound advice. Uh, and let's finish off with this one because I don't know how much you know about curing of meat, but Jasper Ackroyd says on Facebook, uh, as a bacon curer, I'm fascinated by the processes on a microbiological level. So what's actually happening when you smoke and cure meat to the microbes? 
are basically your, your these are historical processes that people have, have done for centuries to try and make foods last longer and basically what you're doing is making conditions within the meat less tolerable for the bacteria that are going to spoil it so um, making it either very salty uh, or in the basis of smoke you're changing the conditions of the, the meat such that uh, the bacteria can't proliferate in the same way uh, as they would do normally well from very hard questions to another hard question ben and now raising a glass to british cheese week here's sarah Custer perry with our question of the week this week what a lovely pairing hello naked scientists my name's tom i'm originally from the uk but i currently live in wellington new zealand i'd like to know where the taste of some food complement each other so well for example cheese and wine thanks very much and keep up the great show ham and pineapple pizza yes please so, who or what decides which foodstuffs go together well? Hi, this is Marcy Pelshaw. I'm a sensory scientist at the Monell Chemical Census Center in Philadelphia. The main reason that some foods are considered to go together better than others is culture. In each culture, we're used to certain pairings and unaccustomed to others. A good example is in the United States, we're used to putting sweet sauces on our meat, things like barbecue sauce and ketchup, whereas the French don't consider that to be such a good combination. But there are some important scientific principles that can explain a classically good combinations like wine and cheese. And there's a saying for wine merchants buy with apples, sell with cheese. And what this means is that wine is at its worst when consumed with apples and at its best with cheese. One principle is that salt, which of course is found in cheese, is a very good bitterness inhibitor. And when wine is consumed with salt, some of the bitterness in, say, a big tannic red wine is suppressed, and this reveals some of the sweetness, and people tend to like it better. Another important principle is taste adaptation. And this is the idea that when you eat a lot of a particular taste, you temporarily become less sensitive to that taste. One classic bad wine and food pairing is a big red wine and dessert. What happens is when you consume a sweet food, you become less sensitive to sweetness, and this reveals the bitterness and the tannins in the wine. So that's why wine and cheese tend to go together. So food pairings are a trade-off between what society tells us should go together and the way in which certain flavours contrast with others. So a sweet food might reveal and enhance the bitterness in another, while a sour food can make its complement taste sweeter. On the forum, TechMind expressed how personal tastes can differ from classical opinion, and Griselda listed the delightful combinations from the back of a crisp packet. Clearly, citric acid and disodium inosinate are an excellent pairing. Next week, another pairing, using a single pair of lungs. Hi, I'm Felicity, and I'm a medical student from Peninsula Medical School. I know that during pregnancy, a fetus gets oxygen from its mother via the umbilical cord. So I was wondering, do pregnant women have to breathe more, or do they just use oxygen more efficiently? Does a pregnant lady need to breathe for two? Answers to chris at thenakedscientist.com 
write on the forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum or tweet at Naked Scientists. Thanks, Sarah. So if you know if pregnant women need to breathe for two, then get in touch. Thank you very much, Ben. That's it for this week. Thank you to Amy Chesterton, Jack Gallant, Martin Adams and Nick Brown. Next week, we're handing the show over to you. It's our science Q&A. So send in your questions to chris at thenakedscientist.com. In the meantime, have a very nice week. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you again at the same time next week. Goodbye. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.